Good evening, and welcome to another episode of the Perceptive Podcast here on Game Wisdom, where we examine the art and science of games. I am, of course, Josh Bicer, and we have a great cast for you. For this week, we're going to be talking to the CEO of Mode 7. They have been around for quite a long time, developing and publishing games, including the hit Frozen Synapse. They're currently working with a developer, Ground Shatter, on the upcoming game Fights in Tight Spaces. And the CEO is on with me today to discuss the studio, game development, and for a design topic, the challenges and kind of considerations when you're trying to keep somebody playing or otherwise long-term retention. So please welcome to the podcast, Paul Taylor. Hi, Josh. It's really nice to be here. Yep, it's great. Again. Yep, it's great to have you on, Paul. You know, we've been talking about doing this for a while, and with everybody now, uh, I guess, forced to be stuck inside, we certainly have plenty <laughs> of time to do these things. Yeah, you got me. You got me. <laughs> but it is a pleasure to have you on. Uh, not counting the whole virus thing, how are things going <laughs> otherwise for you? <laughs> kind of difficult to not count that. Yeah, no, things are, things are good, actually, uh, especially work-wise. So we announced, uh, as you mentioned in your intro, Fights in Tight Spaces um, earlier in the week, which every day feels like about a month at the moment, but it was mm-hmm. actually earlier this week. Um, and thanks to the amazing games media to you know my friends in the game development community and, and to people you know who've played our games that announcement went well people were sharing it a lot we got a lot of a lot of love and encouragement and people just really like the idea of the game so so mm-hmm. to get that positive wave from that you know something that the developers have been working on for a while and i've been involved on the publishing side for a while that really kind of reminds you why you do this stuff so so that's been a big positive uplift for you know a really challenging week yep. and congratulations on that and i know what you feel about like time being all messed up as somebody who has been working from home normally my whole sense of time has been screwed up but with this whole thing going on now it just feels like you know what year is it at this point for day to day absolutely absolutely yeah it's, it's a strange time but but just seeing you know people still enjoying games and, and kind of enjoying the news about games i think one one theme that came out was was people were were saying you know thank you for doing something that's just fun you know putting some fun into into our timelines on, on social media and, and into the world and something else to think about really so so that was again again quite validating because i think at times like this you can think you know games maybe aren't the most important thing in the world but they have their role um and that's an important one Oh, definitely. And I'm sure there's going to be a lot more discussions about in the coming weeks and months. I know I just heard that I think they're uh, rescheduling GDC for the summertime, or at least uh, tentatively for right now. Yeah, I saw that as well. I I mean, personally, I I have to say, I think that's very ambitious. So Mm -hmm. we'll just have to see. I mean, it's caused absolute havoc for the, you know, events generally of all of all kinds venues of all kinds so i think everyone everyone has to be reactive that's the only thing we can do you know it's it's mm-hmm. difficult to plan and my heart really goes out to to the gdc organizers you know they 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 try it really hard it's a huge operation and, and having to have it derailed like this is is very difficult but you know yeah. all credit to them for trying Yep, and I know, like, trying to, like, keep with our, like, in theme with our topics for tonight, I know it's been incredibly rough for indie developers. As you said earlier, Mm. we're trying to get the word out about fights in tight spaces, that 
I know a lot of developers who have been really dreading this news about whole GC cancellation because a lot of them were going out there to do marketing and promotional work. And for the developers who watch my show, I like these things or these times can be very crucial, especially for smaller and up and coming teams. Yes, absolutely. Uh, we, you know, we had some stuff lined up at GDC that we had to pull out of, and, and so on. So, I think when it's something like this, though, as I mentioned, everyone's having to adapt. Mm-hmm. Um, and something I've found really encouraging in the last week or so has just been how much everyone's getting done remotely. I mean, we're so lucky to be in an industry yes. that's based on digital infrastructure and to have that infrastructure hold up in the context of a, a sort of, uh, you know, world changing event like this. So, so there's a, there's two very big pieces of luck there. Um, mm-hmm. and, but people are really sort of making the most of it. So, I mean, I, I would say as well to perhaps other developers or up and coming developers who've been hit by this, you know, a conference not happening, it doesn't, it's not the end of the world. You know, you can still reach out to people. People are very keen to help. People are very keen to share contacts and information and so on. That's one of the best things about the games industry as a whole okay. is that um, in the most part, people want to see other people succeed. Yes. And they feel that success brings everyone up. And that's certainly still true in the in the indie game scene, which has changed a massive amount since I've been involved with it. But that's there's still a spirit of that there, and it's just not present in, in other industries or other fields. So mm-hmm. that's something that you can always rely on. And and I would just say to people, you know, have some have some faith in that. Reach out to people that you do know and, and don't be afraid of contacting people that you don't know because it's a very open industry. Yes, and like for myself, I do a monthly indie spotlight streams where I just look at nothing but indie games, and yes. like I play everything. Like I don't care if you are a, a one-person team or you know this is a game that you just started two minutes ago. Like I will, I've played all manner of games, and like you said, the people in this industry want to see other developers succeed. Like nobody wants to see a studio go under, and that's always been one of the best parts about it. Yeah. Now, with that said, we certainly have a lot to discuss here for tonight. So, to begin with, Paul, since this is your first time on the cast, for people who don't know who you are, could you talk a little bit about your background and kind of what you've done in game dev? Sure. So, I've been working in games for about 15 years, um, and I helped to start a development studio called mode seven with my my very good friend ian hardingham uh and we we started off sort of he was still in university or sorry i I was still in university and he had just left um and we started working initially this was sort of around 2000 2005 although we had done some work together previous to that we worked on a uh, uh our first game which was a flying multiplayer sword fighting game called determinants which is pretty unique for its time it had this sort of analog mouse based sword control but it wasn't really a very good game uh that then led us to quite a long period of doing various types of contract work uh porting work on graphics for tv quiz shows was one of the things we did um and that time uh, sort of was us trying to figure out how to make games and, and, and how to do something that would you know do a bit better in the marketplace and gain a bit of a following so that time was spent coming up with frozen synapse and we launched uh, uh an open beta for that in uh 2010 so that was quite uh you know quite pioneering at the time we sort of had a pre-order gets you the beta type 
system and and that came out in in 2011 um and you know it changed our lives it it, it did really well uh, we got on steam which at that time was very difficult mm-hmm. valve had to sort of personally ask you to put a game on the platform as, as absurd as that seems now <laughs> you actually got an email from someone at valve saying hey have you considered steam distribution uh one of the greatest emails i uh, i've ever received that was from uh anna sweet at valve sent me that mail and uh, we were overjoyed to get that so so yeah so that that combination of being on there early with with a game that that kind of really resonated with people was great for us and then we followed that up with two other quite similar games uh frozen cortex which was a Mm -hmm. sort of futuristic sports game it was also a kind of turn-based simultaneous turn-based strategy game uh and frozen science 2 the the sequel to the original uh, which added this kind of big strategic layer mm-hmm. and then sort of around 2016 2017 we decided to start publishing titles from other developers um signed a game called tokyo 42 which did well uh kind of uh, an isometric sort of stylish action game mm-hmm. kind of a bit classic gta meets syndicate in a in a colorful world and then uh followed that up with a a a lovely charming city builder title called the colonists um which is continuing to do really well on on steam actually not uh you know not sort of prison architect levels of really well or or anything (laughs) like that but but you know really really good for a an indie game just made by one person in fact uh mostly that 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 game with with some support from other freelancers and so on so so we've always we've made small scale games um our company's never been sort of larger than uh really five people in-house i think was was our largest um and we're back down to currently just me with with some other freelancers mostly focusing on the publishing side right now um but i do have another development project which i uh i I guess announced i mean i started talking about it on twitter so that counts as a right so i'm working on another development project currently which is a space combat game and publishing fights in tight spaces so that's that's what i'm currently doing <laughs> great and as you said you've been in the game industry or doing game dev for about 15 years now and yeah is again like we said a few minutes about how like how much time seems to have like no meaning these days like <laughs> 15 years like for some people it sounds like it could be just like 100 years in terms of just how much <laughs> how far things have come and what you said earlier about how back in the old days when you know steam had to contact you to get onto the platform right. i'm sure there are some indie devs right now listening to this like thinking like that could that sounds like something you know far distant past you know that must have been like 30 years ago when they did that (laughs) it's so weird i mean so i i went to an event and mark healy was there who's the the co-founder of media molecule Mm -hmm. um and he was doing a talk about his game ragdoll kung fu which came out in 2008 you know ragdoll kung fu i know this because i think we talked about it before um but a lot of a lot of people now won't know this game and that was I believe the first indie game on Steam. I think Darwinia came quite mm. soon afterwards in 2008, but um, that was that was the first indie game uh, on Steam. Mm-hmm. And it, it's just to look at that game and kind of how that happened. You know, they flew Mark out personally to Seattle and said, like, "Oh, we're trying to do this thing," and you know, <laughs> and he had got a contact there through, I believe, a lawyer that worked at Valve, and he sort of very kindly shared that information with me and said, "Maybe you could talk to them." And so that the the, the, the kind of constituent elements of indie games, Steam was really not designed to be this vast 
kind mm-hmm. of content platform for for everyone at that point it, it was really for you know for valve initially and, and then for other publishers to release you know large publishers to release things digitally and, and then over time because valve is such a progressive company they're always looking to the future they're always mm-hmm. looking to create platforms and systems such a system driven company um they they decided to kind of broaden it out and then there was the second wave of, of steam with green light that came in uh, i believe 2015 yeah so uh, 2014, 2015, um, and that was the start of you know the great the great floodgates opening as as we uh, as we see it now. I mean, something that I found interesting is that people have kind of heralded like the death of Steam and or the death of indie games or at all these different points. Mm-hmm. You know, I was sort of in the room when Greenlight was announced uh, in the UK, and and the mood among developers at that event was kind of like, oh no, you know, here come here come the masses. But actually, at every turn, that's kind of I think had a positive effect. Uh, it's not so simple as you know. People say, "Oh, if you if you made an indie game in two thousand and nine, free money." Well, I know plenty of people who made indie games in two thousand and nine <laughs> and didn't make any money. So, the whole history of that is 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 a complex one, and and things change over time, but they don't necessarily get immediately dramatically better or worse. Mm-hmm. I remember back in two thousand four when I think Steam first came on and. Nobody thought that platform was going to do anything. This whole idea of attaching your game to another client, and so many people, including myself, were just horribly wrong with that one. Yes, no, I, I remember I, the same thing. I and mean, Ian and, and who I started the company with, you know, we got our, we got our copy of Half Life Two, and, and we were kind of installing it at his house, and we were like, "What's this thing <laughs> that we have to do now?" You know, oh, it's some weird copy protection thing. And we thought, you know, this is this is terrible. Like, who's yeah. gonna who's gonna use this? You know, and, and and so it's so funny. But that's what happens when, you know, when you talk to people from Valve, they really have their brains sort of fixed on the future. And I, I think a lot of that, you know, comes from Gabe Newell and, and his attitude and other senior people at Valve, of, of course. But they're they're really looking forwards a lot of the time. And I think that affects a lot of their decision making. It's why some of their decision making can be quite opaque and. Uh, at times and, and and i think i think valve have done a lot recently to kind of open that back up again and and, and make sure that their relationship with developers is is good and that, that that people are clear on on things you know they have a lot of responsibility uh in terms of kind of being largely responsible for for digital distribution on pc but i think they i think they handle it very well overall mm-hmm. yep and Again, like with how much things have changed in terms of the market, I mean, there's a probably two or three podcasts just on that one topic alone. And one thing I wanted to touch on with you is the idea of going from being just a developer to a publisher. I know I've spoken with uh, Cliff Harris a few times from Positech about this. Oh, yeah. And I guess for uh, you and your partner with Mode 7, what led you into doing indie publishing as well as designing? It was a, a combination of factors, really. But but one thing, we were spending a lot of time making games. You know, we were quite slow uh, at game development uh, through various points in our history. And, and we were sort of looking at how can we be more productive? Because that's something that you often have to do to respond to kind of a more challenging market, which is busier as you have to look at yourself and go, you know, how can we improve our productivity? And one of the things that we, you know, we thought we could do is 
use some of the functions that weren't being used at sort of mid development, like, you know, my ability to do PR and marketing for one thing, uh, and just sort of those resources that we had to work with other developers, particularly newer developers who might not have that experience and, and, and people who might be overlooked by larger publishers or, or sort of might not might need some guidance on how to do a game at a small scale. You know, there are plenty of publishers out there, especially now. I mean, the, the increase in that has been very rapid as well. But there, are, there aren't that many with extensive development experience, you know, going back years um, kind of built in. So that was the thing that we felt we could offer that was that was pretty unique was um, just that that knowledge of how to deliver something that's that's really high quality knowledge you know of the challenges we've had things go well we've had things go badly different reasons for both of those we've been through a lot um so at that point we we sort of said like how can we how can we make use of that uh, and give value to to other people and sort of expand our our business really um and you know we were we were just lucky enough to to find some great developers to work with and you know people to whom we, we could genuinely add that value. I think something, if you're making an investment in something or uh, getting involved in, in any kind of project, you want to feel like you're making a significant contribution that's going to affect the outcome. Um, mm-hmm. And we, in terms of publishing, we will always take on things that uh, that where that's true. Yep. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I remember when I spoke with uh, Cliff about this, and one of the things that he said was that after developing so many games for so many years, like he kind of understood like that whole process of what it means to publish and market your game, and felt like he could help and assist other developers because it is a very hard point about game development. Something that uh, for a lot of our live shows and recorded videos, we've talked about at length that there are developers out there who have a lot of trouble when it comes to marketing their game. And in today's world, that can be more than half the battle in terms of getting people to notice you. Right, absolutely. And and I always think that one of the one of the good things about games is is that they really uh, exemplify the truism. You know, marketing starts with the product. Marketing isn't a thing that you bolt onto something that already exists. It should inform the decisions you're making as a developer because marketing is about connecting with people you know there's mm-hmm. there's a lot of very people hear the word marketing and, and they 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 think of like you know ty lopez on youtube telling you about his lamborghini or something <laughs> you know they, they think about that mm-hmm. and and there is that side to it um but the, the the sort of real nature of it should be about here's something that that is going to have a positive impact on someone else how can i tell them about it and how can i get them to engage with it um and you can't get people to engage if that really isn't true if you're not mm-hmm. making something that that has those fundamental qualities to it and that's why you know i i enjoy game marketing but i i really only enjoy it when it's something that i believe in mm-hmm. that that i'm passionate about that i just want to go hey you know try this thing um so I think that's kind of something that is challenging for a lot of developers because learning to come up with concepts that resonate with people and executing those concepts in such a way that that they're accessible um, and that they're not sort of hampered by by problems. You know, that's a lifelong skill. It's it, 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 experienced developers still get that wrong. You know, look mm-hmm. at some of the big names that have had games fail uh nobody is immune to making mistakes in that area so 
it's just very difficult. Um, but over time, you do pick up some understanding of different audiences and, and what they might want and, and how they look at games. Um, and that can really inform, you know, what you're making and, and the way you make it. Mm-hmm. And yeah, like you said, like for a lot of people out there, both in the industry and without or and out, they look at marketing sometimes as being, you know, this evil thing, you know, quote unquote, you are selling out if you try and like mention your game on Twitter or you try and do like marketing with somebody else. And it is very much something that like as a developer, you need to be able to show that passion about your game because if you don't care about your game, nobody else is really going to do it for you. Right. I I, I think it's being exposed to a, a lot of bad stuff like i think a lot of you know sales and marketing that that we experience mm-hmm. in our daily lives it, it is bad and and it isn't predicated on on real things but to me that the people that are worried about overdoing it or their their concern for other people's time and attention those are the people that 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 i want to hear more from like because mm-hmm. they're they're good and, and intelligent and sensitive people they're not in your face shouting all the time so unfortunately the only way to to get people to notice you is to compete in that environment a bit and it's something i struggle with it's something that everyone struggles with you know when am i competing and when am i just making the situation worse by adding to the noise but i think if you're sensitive and intelligent about what you're saying how you're saying it um the kind of people you're saying it to you know one one person's noise is another person's music so it's kind of if you're talking to the right audience then they're going to like what you're saying and then they are going to be interested in it. If you're blasting it at everyone willy-nilly, then then a lot of people are going to be annoyed with you. So mm-hmm. I, I really think that if developers are making something that they believe in or, or any creative person's making something that they believe in, having that connection with with other people is is what that's all about. I, I don't... There's a, still this myth of kind of if you make amazing art then then people will come and there's some truth in that but it's a very slippery truth that's that's sort of difficult to articulate and it's not as it's not as clear-cut as people think you know mm-hmm. you can make the most beautiful thing in the world and if no one ever sees it then it's just going to be for you and you know that might be okay but if your goal is to reach an audience or make money or any mm-hmm. combination of those two things you've got to present it to people in some way yeah and like you said, for a lot of people, especially developers, they're not interested. Oh, there's a car alarm going off. Sorry about that. <laughs> okay. <laughs> one second. <clears throat> All right. Three, two, one. Yep. And as you said, for a lot of developers out there, they're not thinking about, you know, what is the most uh, clickbaity way I can present myself on Twitter or make the most exciting thumbnail on YouTube. They're just trying to make a video game. And right. one thing that I got from, or one thing I felt from a lot of others I've spoken to with these casts, is that to them this isn't like uh, being a celebrity. Like just because you make a video game, you're not you know a triple A uh, or you know you're you're a list celebrity. You're just doing your job day to day, and it's kind of weird and awkward to kind of like present yourself as this big hotshot when it's just like your normal nine to five or whatever. Mm. Well, uh, I think, again, it's sort of, who do you want to hear from? Do you mm-hmm. want to hear from the person that thinks they're a hotshot and thinks they're amazing? Or do you want to hear from someone who's humble about the work they do, who cares about it, who, you know, is is putting real real passion into it to try and make something good? Like, I want to hear from that person. But mm-hmm. in order to hear from them, you know, they have to talk and, and they have to have a vehicle yep. 
by which they're they're presenting stuff to other people. It's it's a battle that I've had, you know, with with different friends and, and different people sort of absolutely throughout my life. And I think we've got to a point now where most people recognize that you kind of have to, in quotes, do marketing, but they sort of don't necessarily always understand what that is or, 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 or how to do it or how communities work. Um, and I would just say, you know, it, it's it's about finding things that, that that are good, that that really do help people and bring them together. I mean, something that we've started doing recently um, in conjunction with the team uh, at, at Ground Shatter is to run a Discord server for fights in tight spaces. And on that Discord server, we're doing metagame style stuff in the style of, um, you know, Mike Rose from No More Robots, who's mm-hmm. kind of made that approach famous. And it, you can look at that on the one hand, you can say like, oh, why are people playing these silly games? You know, we have kind of bots in there that, that people can play games with and so on. And then you go in there, especially at the moment, and you see people playing it and they're all discussing like, what's the right strategy for this bot and what's going to happen in the story for the metagame and who's this person how much money do you have and what so it, it's really it, once you see that kind of people just enjoying themselves in a community space that you're curating it's it who could argue that that's a that's a bad thing yeah. uh so there's, there's that aspect to it as well when you're building communities around something which is the, the modern way of doing marketing uh, is to is to build a community that has innate value uh, irrespective of whether people buy the game or, or whatever, you know, you're doing something there that's good. And I'd really urge developers to sort of think about that. You know, don't think about it as selling to people. Like people are very savvy about being sold to now. They they know when when a hard sell is coming. Um, but instead, if if you're there directly benefiting them and they have a relationship with you and, and your game, then f- the money will will kind of emerge out of that eventually. Mm-hmm. Yep. And Paul, if you want to do some more, help me with marketing tips. I would really appreciate what that good game was. Was I could use some of that insight. <laughs> sure thing. Sure thing. Well, my consultancy fees are very reasonable. All right. Great. <laughs> so uh, before we talk more about your games and get to our main design topic, uh, one final question for you regarding being doing like indie publishing. And this is something that I like to ask a lot of developers who have gone that route themselves. When you look at kind of the games where you talk to developers who they're interested in working with you, what do you think or are there any like notable red flags that you feel are common for indie devs to make when it comes to the marketing or publishing side of their game? So red flags in terms of, you know, would I would I say no to taking on their game? Do you mean in that kind of context or or Um, just things that, that people aren't doing well? Let's actually do both because I think they're both very big or very important for developers listening. Okay. Well, it's interesting. Yeah, there's there's sort of different types of red flag. I mean, there's not reading some basic information on a contact form is actually the main red flag that I see when I receive kind of cold pitches. Uh, so, you know, on, on our site, it has a description of the kind of games that we're interested in. Mm-hmm. It's kind of, it's, it's not a very prescriptive description, but it, but it is there. And it's clear that a lot of people sending pitches to that are just trying to find the contact form as fast as possible, pasting mm-hmm. in the same information they've pasted into a hundred people and pressing send. Like that is never going to get your game signed. None of those games will ever be signed by any publishers at all, mm-hmm. because it, 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 if you're not capable of thinking about why 
you are submitting something to that publisher, thinking about their output, how you fit in with their catalog, or making something that that stands out enough to kind of cut through that that crowd of people doing the same things, then you, you will not find a publisher. Mm-hmm. Um, things that have gone further down the line, I think a big red flag for me is people who keep restarting development. That's mm-hmm. a really difficult issue because especially if they haven't finished a game before, uh, one of the, the main risk you're taking on as a publisher is development risk. Uh, and that category basically means will the game get finished uh, in, a, in a viable form and will it be like a, a, an acceptable functional product at least when it comes out mm-hmm. if you can release a game that works then the risk goes down dramatically uh, from no game being released or a game that fundamentally doesn't work uh, so that that is a real concern and that can kind of come out of due diligence and, and, and talking to people when you, you sort of realize that, that a project might have had a difficult history um i I have looked at at, at some projects that have been like that and kind of that seemed like something that you know could be pushed past if the developer had the right guidance so it's it's not like an absolute problem but one of the things that is always reassuring to a publisher is that that you finished something even better if you finish something that that had some degree of success doesn't have to be a huge hit or anything like that Mm -hmm. but something that got out in in the market and, and, and people liked so those are kind of big um publishing sort of red flags on the front end things that people do wrong generally i think uh planning and scope is is a huge one projects i've been involved with it's the same thing that everyone says really it's over scoping and not focusing on the core of the game first getting something that's fun in a prototype uh, that really is a meaningful game design that you can imagine someone playing for a long time that doesn't sort of get boring or, or, or dull after about 20 minutes um, is that something that people, developers still need to do this. Uh, people who push on really far with art and polish and secondary systems and stuff before they have that core game loop in there. Yep. Core game loops are hard. Yes. You know, I, <laughs> they're hard. I, I, I found this out sort of for myself. I, I did a free... A text-based game called War Dialer, which is a sort of hacking adventure game, uh, and it's reasonably significant in terms of its its, its scope. It's quite it's quite a long game for that sort of game. Um, but I, you know, uh, I allowed myself to kind of approach that as a hobby project, and I found that I was doing all the things that I tell people not to do. I was building out content before I had a core loop. I was, mm-hmm. and and it, it's just everyone needs to remember that lesson of. You know, you're making a game, and the gameplay of the game needs to be good. (laughs) (laughs) It seems so straightforward, but it's so hard to get right. It's like saying, you know, just draw a good picture. It's it's, it's, it's along those lines. So drawing a good picture takes years of practice and training and working on individual bits and focus, you know, focus on sketching that object or or, or working from your imagination. And games are are no different. So focusing on the basics is is something that everyone has to remember to do. Mm -hmm. And especially with the idea of the core gameplay loop, this is something that I've been talking more and more about with a lot of the content with Game Wisdom, is this idea that you have to understand the fundamental level what your game is going to be about. Because it doesn't matter how many secondary systems or what your aesthetics are, if at the end of the day, it's all connected to nothing. Or it's something that just doesn't end up working. And I've seen developers, sadly, who have done, who've had that very issue of chasing that core gameplay loop. 
And I'm sure you've seen this as well, that, you know, it's two steps forward, three steps back in terms of progress. And either A, the game never gets done, or B, they finally figure it out, but it's too late. And now yes. there's no money or, you know, anything left in the budget to actually make this game now. Uh, it's difficult and it it is something that that people say a lot i mean i think it's interesting to kind of think about ways of circumventing that so so how do you do it right and i think that comes from allowing yourself to fail a lot at the beginning i think there's a lot of sort of maybe some of the ways that game design has been taught in the past has been you know you do a paper prototype and then you write a document and then you do there's no all of that stuff is good. You, you know, doing paper prototypes, writing documents. I wrote a design document for the uh, space combat game that, that we're going to be working on soon, and which was quite long. You know, it had quite a lot of, there was quite a lot of different stuff in the document, suggestions of secondary systems and so on, but it was all there ready to be thrown away. You know, it was, it, it, we're exploring different things and we're, there's ideas in there that we can go to that document and grab them and go, let's try this. Whether it survives or not doesn't matter. Um, and the thing we're building out first is here is, you know, the 3D model of the cockpit that you're in. And here's how the controls work. And here's how you shoot lasers. And we're, we're starting with that. We're making that feel good first because it's the major action that the player does in the game is move the ship around in 3D space and fire lasers at things. And then once that's good, we're going to move on to does it feel good to shoot a static target? Does it feel good to shoot a moving target? Does it feel good to shoot a target moving in a pattern? And then finally, what's some very basic AI for an enemy and how is that going to feel? And the only, you can't, you can't get the entire game design from your head into the computer instantaneously. You have to do things like that, step through, see how it feels at different times. You know, game design is such a combination of intuition and and analysis um, that you've got to let yourself try things and fail. Um, and it's best to do that, uh, you know, without secondary stuff hanging on it, without art hanging on it. Um, just, just a pure, you know, working on that prototype until it feels good with no art or with very limited art. And then, you know, you're on the right track, yep. but a lot of people don't have that luxury of time, especially if they're going out pitching, you know, they want to get the art in quickly and so on. So it's, it's difficult. Mm-hmm. Yep. And like you said, just getting that basic structure down it sounds simple I mean, again it's one of those things that sounds so simple and to tell somebody but it is very hard to just know whether or not this idea is going to appeal to people other than yourself yes and that is pretty much half the battle at the start and like i've said this before to like on a lot of my shows that these days i can spot almost very quickly whether or not a game has it, you know, the quote-unquote magical it in terms of, you know, a really solid core gameplay loop. And like we've always said, like, it sounds simple. Like, when when I talk about this and I make my videos, I say that the stuff that we're talking about, most people will never think about. Because when it works, it looks like you did nothing at all. But again, the simplest stuff is oftentimes the most complicated to get right. Yeah. And, and, and that's why I think people can be very unforgiving of themselves, especially if they're new game designers and they kind of think, I should be able to do all this straight away. Mm-hmm. And if, if there's one thing, you know, that I've, I've picked up 
sort of working on on games and, and kind of taking now into my role you know being more of a lead designer on, on projects or, or kind of working directly with with the designers it's that you have to be kind to yourself and just if you make something that's bad that's great information mm-hmm. you know that thing doesn't work you don't have to worry about it anymore so throw it away and then move on to something else. And you're right, it's very hard. You know, you're relying on your own judgment a lot. And that's why it's good to have other people that you trust around or other team members, you know, when you get to that point. But a lot of the time, it's about having your best go at something, finding a direction, sticking with it, working out some problems yourself and going, I think this is solid, and then taking it externally for feedback. I think some people seek out feedback way too early uh, and some people don't seek it out at all. Yeah. And there's a happy medium there in terms of, you know, you have to get confident with an idea um, and it's practice. You know, that's why it sounds simple, but it isn't, you know, it's, I know what I have to do to exercise. Like I know exactly have an exercise bike in my house. Like I know exactly how long I have to spend on that bike every day to, to maintain my fitness and I don't do it every day. <laughs> Because it's hard work and sometimes I'm tired and I don't feel like not <laughs> persistent enough to do it, right? And, and and any skill is the same. Game design is the same. Music is the same. You know, it's about sitting down, focusing your mind, putting the time in and not judging yourself when it doesn't work. And and that's just, that's just difficult. Uh, and games are hard because there's so many moving pieces and so much is contingent on so much else uh, that, it, that it can be difficult to do. But I'd massively encourage anyone, you know, trying to get into game design or who, who's in game design and, and, and struggling with it to just allow yourself the time is, is the main thing. Mm-hmm. Definitely. And again, like these topics that we're talking about, we could spend you know, an hour or two easily on. <laughs> it's just that simple. And for a lot of dollars out there, like it's these points we just keep hammering on about. And I think it's very important to have these conversations because so much about the game industry has matured over the last 10, 15 years that if you're trying to design a game or think about game development back in like the early thousands, you're kind of going to be in for a rude awakening. Right. Absolutely. Uh, I think one thing that I've seen that, that kind of interests me is even very successful game designers, you know, I, I, because of sort of the way indie games are like, I now know people who are, they're literally multimillionaires from working in games. They've had every success you can imagine. They've won every award you can imagine. And some of those people struggle still to make a new game because they get very hamstrung by their existing success. And they're like, how can I make something that's the same level or how can I, and I just think my recommendation always is I say, make something that you know will be a commercial failure, make it that you want to make anything and make it free and they go like why and they, no it will unblock you if you start thinking about success and comparing yourself to other things and uh, you know really early as part of the process you're gonna you're not gonna make something good you have to have this weird skill of putting that completely out of your mind and starting to work on something and then bringing that back in bring in your knowledge of of marketing like we talked about before mm-hmm. bringing that context into it and going okay how can i make this into something that's going to resonate with people and how much is it for a very niche audience and that that can be fine as well you know especially if you're successful you can you can you don't have to you know <laughs> try and gun for a huge hit you can go for a little audience and it's often those things that really do well yep. because there might not be that specific you know, uh, exact thing for someone. Um, so I think 
working on free projects is really good, even if they're really small, uh, as a way of kind of getting through that block. But also, again, you know, most people get into game design because they want to make things that are fun, that people enjoy, that they can spend time with. And I think refocusing on that rather than all of this secondary stuff, you know, as you said, sort of people who maybe there was that sort of romantic indie game idea that that sort of came out. I'm not going to blame indie game the movie because that was a sort of easy target to bash. I, I think indie game the movie is quite interesting in its own right. But there was definitely a sense around that time, around Minecraft as well, where people were like, oh, this is cool in some way and I can have all this success automatically somehow. And and that is, you should just not focus on that. It, it's not interesting to think about. What's interesting to think about is what, what can you make that you like that someone else mm-hmm. might like? Yep. And I've seen what you just described as well, again, with developers who they had that either breakout hit or that massive success, and then they end up struggling to figure out what do they do next. And like what you said, it is very real, that idea of, okay, my last game did this amount, I need to make a game that, can I make something that is equal to that or even better? Mm-hmm. And it has, again, led to a lot of developers, like, having that trouble. And for, like, people like listening to us right now, I think your advice is really sound about just, you know, turn, you know, the marketing off, you know, at the start and just think about making something that you want to do. Because yep. if you try to just keep uh, one-upping yourself, eventually you're just going to burn out on ideas. And we've had discussions with previous developers about that that idea of what does it mean to you know be alive or to exist in the game industry long term and it's something that not as many people are thinking about as they should uh, one of my favorite guests about this was a uh, jake Burgett of gray alien games oh uh, jake's a good friend of mine yep yep yeah. he's uh, he's very good on, on on these topics and you know his career has spanned across entirely different areas of of games you know all the way from casual games kind of back in the day you mm-hmm. did work for big fish and uh, as i'm sure he told you about on, yep. on the show and and then you know right through to now that he's working on ancient enemy and we've been talking about that game mm-hmm. and it, it, you know you're, you're so right to think about this you know when when i started the the i mean initially it was sort of i was applying for jobs out of university and and then working on games seemed more interesting so that was that was the only thing i cared about was okay this is more interesting and i might possibly one day make some money from it then it became can we make a good game and we were just focused so hard on like as long as we make a good game then we'll have we'll have done ourselves a service and then we when we went through a period of how do we follow up you know how do we sort of consolidate our position in some ways and and i think some of that thinking you know led to some of the things we did which didn't work so well um and then now more recently just kind of being freed up to do different things again and 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 exploring things that i perhaps personally like more um it feels exciting again and, and it feels like there's a lot more that that you know that I can contribute. So your career will go through different phases, up and down phases. It, it doesn't matter who you are, how successful you are. You know you're going to have ups and downs. And the thing that helps you ride that out is an underlying 
love and, and enjoyment of the process, uh, the people that, that you're working with, um, and the medium itself. You know, it's all very well to say that you that you love games and sort of everyone everyone enjoys games, but I think there ha- if you lose that satisfaction from seeing something emerge from your own mind uh, and then sort of be realized or, or from helping someone else to realize something you know that's that's a kind of underrated thing everyone wants to to create things but actually there's such a huge important role for helping facilitate things which is what i've done for most of my career Mm -hmm. um if you maintain the love and enjoyment there then you can't really fail you know even if your career doesn't go commercially the way you want uh if you retain that feeling then you can find a way to build it into your life and find a way to make it work uh, and that's that's the most important thing. At the end of the day, it's about trying to, you know, have a life that that allows you to incorporate things you love and allows you to work in in the way that you want as much as possible. So if you have that as a long term focus, rather than you know, I'm going to make an amazing game and be number one on Steam, or uh, you know, I'm I'm going to win awards and so on, then then that will really help uh, keep you going. It stops you comparing yourself to other people as well. Yep. That is a nightmare in indie games. I've certainly fallen afoul mm-hmm. of that. Everyone does it. Everyone looks at the new game that's released. And go, oh, how many sales did they get in the first week? And, and this, that, and the other end. That's fun. If it's a light bit of competition and whatever, that's fun. It pushes you forwards. But it's very easy to get bogged down on that. There are so many devs who mm-hmm. are like, why did this game sell? And my game's like this. Oh, and yes. you just think, sometimes it's luck. It's just pure luck. And sometimes your game just isn't as good as their game or it's just not as exciting as their game. Um, so don't spend any time on that, really. There's, there's, no, there's no, you know, nothing productive there. It just makes you feel bad. Mm-hmm. And that kind of, like, that kind of comparison, like you said, it doesn't really help because, again, like, one of the beauties or one of the nightmares about game development is that you rarely from the outside see all the work that goes into it. And I've said this before about other developers who look at a successful game and think, oh, that person just made a good game and that's all they did. Now they're rich and famous. No, there's a lot more that goes on behind the scenes that leads to that success. Right. And and again, you know, like I said, without a real love of process and and a real love of back and there, you know, you're not going to you're not going to survive. And also I think it's okay. You know, if that goes away for a while, if you don't want to work on games, you know, last year I spent sort of mostly working on music and that was, you know, it was fantastic to have the opportunity to do that for one thing. Like, I know a lot of mm-hmm. people uh, would want that opportunity, but, but getting music is something I've always done alongside games. And there was a time when I thought, uh, you know, I, I kind of done what I wanted to do in games uh, and I'll, I'll focus on that now. But then, you know, things come up and opportunities come up and, and you think actually, you know what, this is, this is going to be the right kind of challenge for me. This is exciting. And, and, you know, you get pulled back in. And I think that's the sign of when you, when you do really love something, you can never really leave it. Mm-hmm. So I think with that, again, like we can just sit here and rant for hours and hours <laughs> on top, especially with the quarantine going on. I mean, there's no, <laughs> we don't have to leave. leave the house at some point. It's the infinite podcast. <laughs> yeah, exactly. But uh, I always uh, offer this. If you're free in the future, Paul, we can always do a follow-up cast or uh, we can do something live and have questions from the audience as well. That'd be great. Yeah, I'd love to do that sometime. But uh, with that, let's talk a little bit about fights in tight spaces and then we'll talk a little uh, we'll spend probably the rest of our time talking about our topic about long-term retention. Yeah. So, 
I kind of asked it at the start in terms of kind of introduction, but this time let's talk more about fights in tight spaces. For the people listening to us right now who missed the announcement, what is this game? Fights in tight spaces is a turn-based, card-based fighting game. Uh, it's kind of structured uh, like a brawler, so you play you know, a single character fighting a group of enemies in a tight space, as the name would imply. <laughs> um, and your moves are cards. So you have a hand uh, of moves dealt to you um, at the start of a level, and then you have to make the best use of that. So you can do all your standard punches and kicks, but there are also some some nice sort of action movie-style moves in there, some environmental moves as well. Uh, and the whole thing kind of ends up being animated in a sort of cinematic style. The visuals look, uh, I would say, like a tad similar to things like the intro to um, Casino Royale, James Bond movie. So it's mm-hmm. that kind of um, silhouette look, uh, which looks really cool and enables us to have this kind of stylish action movie feel to everything that's going on. And yeah, there's a big deck building component as mm-hmm. well. So you can upgrade different cards. You can kind of shuffle your hand around and, uh, and make choices about which card you're going to take at different stages and so on. So a really interesting combination of things. Um, influences include Into the Breach and Slay the Spire. So kind of very trendy influences. <laughs> uh, not not always the kind of thing that I immediately go for, but it's, it, it's, it's nice to see um, a developer who's doing that. Yeah, and it's being developed by Ground Shatter, which is a team um, in Bristol in the UK. Uh, and they made a game called Rico, which is a really excellent uh, sort of blasty uh, it's kind of a short form FPS. It's largely about kicking doors down and then going to slow motion and, and shooting everyone in a room as sort of as efficiently as possible. Sort of slight Max Payne vibes to that game. I really like that game. I think it's slightly underrated. I mean, it, it did fairly well, but um, it's a great game. So mm-hmm. go and have a play of Rico on Steam as well, their, their previous game. They've got some DLC for that, uh, which I think is out now. Um, so yes, I, I would check that out as well. But, but yeah, uh, signed this one last year hoping to get it out this year uh and it's 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 an interesting one it's one that the james parker the lead designer he's kind of had this idea kicking around for a long time he's a big action movie fan um and that sort of informs a lot of his game design so it's really cool to be working with him he's someone i've known for years as well so finally getting the chance to do a project together is really fun mm-hmm. and I know from watching like footage of it, it also really reminded me a lot of a John Wick Hex that came out last year too. That kind right. of, so it, yeah. it's it's interesting that yeah we've we've had that comparison a lot, and it, it, we knew that the comparison was coming. We kind of were quite far along in design before we knew what uh hex was uh so when that got announced it was kind of interesting i i had a funny conversation with alexander swinsky from biffle games where i described fights in tight spaces to him before they'd announced hex and he didn't he didn't tell me anything about hex he just kind of went hmm hmm that's interesting <laughs> and, and i i thought he was reacting to the idea and saying well it's a terrible idea so i said to him like oh do you, have you do you think that's that's bad and he was like no 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 <laughs> and then i saw what they released so that was that was pretty funny our, our, our approach to combat is kind of pretty different from hex so hex has that kind of simultaneous turn-based sort of style uh that i mean they innovated their own kind of version of that i think they called it timeline timeline mm-hmm. tactics uh but but fights is very much definitely traditional turn-based um mm-hmm. and one of the reasons for that is james was actually telling me this earlier um on a on a little podcast that we did but he 
wanted this idea of in an action movie uh in a close quarters fight it always looks like the hero has kind of planned out a few moves and they're sort of going bang 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 and then they take a break maybe they respond to someone jumping through a window or a car crashes into them or you know something like that uh, and then they do another sequence so he wanted as you play your hand he wanted that feeling of like okay this move then this move then this move without having necessarily sort of that simultaneous turn-based thing of having to second guess your opponent the whole time uh and for me it was nice having worked on you know three simultaneous turn-based games now to do a pure turn-based game um and there were some some real advantages from that technical advantages as well as gameplay ones Mm. um yeah i think one of my favorite things is as you were describing the game being slay the spire-esque i just did a a podcast where we're breaking down slay the spire and Mm. we were saying how like this game seems to be inspiring all these new deck building style roguelike right. games, right? And it's just amazing to kind of see, like, along with someone like with John Wick Hex, that idea of I'm not sure will be the correct term, but it's almost like abstracting like action games into a, like another genre. Hmm. I think it's something that people have wanted for a while, and I think for me personally, you know, I I do. I will still play FPSs. I mean, not not multiplayer ones, <laughs> but I think for it, it, those games take so much time to build up the skills. Uh, particularly, I think if you're you know an older gamer or, mm-hmm. or or someone who doesn't have that much solid time to put in, it's it's very hard to dip in and out of like you know modern warfare multiplayer. <laughs> That's something where you need to be practicing kind of every day to to be competitive. So I think a lot with action games, this sort of the pause time or, or or slow motion or you know simultaneous turn-based allows for it to be more of an intellectual kind of decision-making exercise than it is a reflex skill exercise i think it's that transition from uh muscle memory and and that sort of skill to a more considered kind of chess type mm-hmm. of planning gameplay um that, that that appeals to people but i think if you get it framed right then you know you can get people who like exciting action to to play and, and they don't they almost don't sort of think about the fact that it's turn-based that much it goes back to what you were saying earlier actually you know if the design is seamless enough people don't notice mm-hmm. and like for myself like i grew up playing first person shooters so that kind of knowledge is now like second hand for me <laughs> it's ingrained yeah. yeah but i am terrible like at the fighting game genre for instance like i did not you know get anywhere good at street fighter or mortal Kombat back in the day and trying to jump into those genres now, like, it just is like, it's always been that brick wall. And it's kind of like a very interesting parallel to what, like, Smash Brothers did for fighting games, mm-hmm. with presenting a very kind of squared down or streamlined take that has been, like, very appealing to a lot of people. That I think there's always something to be said, you know, and, and I would say Overwatch as well mm-hmm. for for team shooters. It, people can call it dumbing down. I don't. That's that's sort of a nasty term for it. I, whatever that term is, I love that. You know, I love the chance to be able to go and 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 play a sort of, I guess, a, maybe a Blizzardified version or a, just a more accessible version. Something that allows me to experience gameplay that otherwise I'd need to, you know, build up this huge skill base just to even play the game. Um, I'm still waiting for someone to do that kind of with RTSs because uh, I, I did attempt to play StarCraft 2 a lot uh, and managed to get to the point where I could enjoy playing games, but have no hope of ever 
reaching any kind of reasonable, reasonably mm-hmm. high skill level in that game. So if you can do that as a designer, if you can find a way to synthesize the decisions or the fun from a very high skill-based genre, you can actually end up making it have broader appeal. And, and that's one good way of, you know, if you are trying to design a more commercial type of project, I would say, look at something where you can take something that's inherently good, but make it open to a wider audience. That's an amazing thing to do if you can achieve it. Yeah. And it's, again, there's one of those things that it sounds very easy, but it can be very hard in practice. Oh, and, yeah, because you have to retain the inherent good yeah. qualities of that thing. <laughs> that, they might not be able to do that. if. It- yeah. And not only that, but there's also that whole struggle with trying to get out the echo chamber of a genre of your fans. Because as you said, a lot of people look at this as just dumbing down, meaning the game's going to be bad. But you have to really be able to balance you know, as you said, what is the major appeal of this game and how do we get this into more hands? Yeah, it's about changing the dynamics of the game rather than making the game sort of easier. Mm-hmm. And I think that's what a lot of a lot of, you know, the more militant kind of hardcore get good style people don't understand mm-hmm. is that Overwatch isn't easier. Like if you if you want to become mm-hmm. a, a top level Overwatch player, yep. you probably need to go and train in Korea. Like it, it's you know, so that's that's hard. <laughs> that is the definition of hard. Something that you have to dedicate your life to doing at a high level. However, it is friendlier and easier for new people to play that than it is, say, Rainbow Six Siege, which is another great game. But it's it's kind of I would say that the skill gap from complete beginner to I am having fun participating in a multiplayer yeah. game in that game is much wider, and that's fine. Like, there's nothing, it's not morally good or bad about either thing. They're just targeted differently. So I think. Um, focusing on understanding that it's a change of curve, like a change of dynamics, which requires a huge amount of design skill to do well. And if you do change that curve, you automatically have a different game. Like Overwatch isn't the same as TF2, um, and it it isn't the same as, as other team shooters, but it has a feeling that's similar. Uh, and that's that's a real art form. And that's why, you know, they spent so long on that game trying to revise it and tweak it and, and and make it work. And at one point, you know, I remember there were some press previews and it really didn't look like it was going that well. Uh, mm-hmm. But, you know, being Blizzard, they, they managed to pull it round to this to this amazing game. I think it's a great game um, and, and a really interesting thing to study if you're looking at that idea of mm-hmm. changing dynamics. Yeah. And like it, like with your example, Rainbow Six Siege. Like I tried playing that during a free weekend, like I think it was like a month or two ago, and like I was demolished within I think twenty <laughs> seconds of starting a map, and like I had no idea what was going on. I was like, yeah, this game is not going to be for me. Like the second I saw somebody killed me by a prone crouch uh prone corner peeking through a wall that was destroyed and got a headshot it was like yeah this is above my pay grade like this is not gonna work for me (laughs) right and you're an fps player yeah imagine you know people who struggle with that and again but those games are great as well so Mm -hmm. the alternative direction is to make something super super difficult and super Mm-hmm. deep and it requires a massive amount of investment to get good at i mean one game that i think about a lot and uh, 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 was talked about at the time but perhaps not as much as it should have been was kenshi i don't know if you've seen that game it um, sounds familiar but i don't think i played that it's a really interesting game it, it, it's kind of the best way of describing it is is a procedurally generated rpg 
Uh, so it's kind of a simulated world where you are a character who starts off. I think you, I think you always start off as a slave or, or as a very low character. And there's kind of different tribes and groups and factions in the game who all rove around and everything is driven by AI and simulation. So it's not like the quests you get aren't kind of written by someone. They're like this object exists in the world and you mm-hmm. need to go and get it. And you can start off as, as this this one character and then you can build up to kind of being a general, having an army and building a whole settlement. And, you know, it, it's this enormous scope of game. Uh, quite janky as, as a lot of games like that are. Uh, and I think it took the developer something absurd, like nine years or 12 years or something to <laughs> actually get it into a releasable form. But that, really shows you know it's a very hardcore game it's 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 very unforgiving confusing mm-hmm. you know like it has elements of dwarf fortress and so on but it's been hugely successful i mean an absurd number of sales uh, and that's because the depth really is there and if you if you spend a lot of time on it and you do a lot of reading of wikis and you watch tutorial videos and you figure out the systems for yourself then you can have experiences in that game that you cannot have elsewhere uh and that's that's sort of the whole trick really it it doesn't to be successful especially on pc i think pc players are the kind of people often who are willing to to explore something you know they they tend to be curious people who who really want to know how things work and they love systems and picking them apart uh, and trying to get the better of systems often Mm -hmm. uh you know think about someone who has a dedicated gaming machine in their house that they may well have built themselves that's going to be the kind of person who is willing to sit down and give something a lot of time uh if you you're capable of making a game like that then you can certainly do very well but that really is a that has to be a labor of love it has to be your life's project in in a lot of cases look at dwarf fortress you know the number of years that's been in development that's mm-hmm. someone's life's work yes right there. definitely and like we say, like when we get to like those high end or those like hardcore demanding games, they will undoubtedly create a fan base of hardcore gamers. And then the challenge then becomes, how do we kind of like can we soften that for somebody who hasn't been following this game for the last five to ten years? Right. And I know specifically Dwarf Ford, I know they got picked up. I think they're being published by a Kid Fox. Yes. And one of the things they're doing for that version is like what I just said. They're trying to make it more appealing to somebody who has no idea what Dwarf Fortress is and they see it on a Steam store page. That that's a really exciting project and, yeah. and, and certainly one that's kind of you know, what a Herculean task that is, because it's like the ultimate un- inaccessible game and sort of but but I, I that's another route that you can go is is sort of once you've built out the scope and depth, then you can start thinking about how how do we get people into this. Um I mean I, I played recently uh the latest Mortal Kombat game and I'm kind of like you in, in that I, I sort of mm-hmm. uh, I played a few fighting games. I played Smash for a while, uh but but I'm not, you know, a great fighting game player. And the extent of the tutorials in, mm-hmm. in that game now you can do things like pin moves to the screen, which is brilliant. So yes. you go through the move list and select it, pin it, and then uh, it has all the training mode that tells you your timing and like where, when it's off and so on. That made me really think okay if i wanted to learn this and i had time i really mm-hmm. could and it would be a much better experience than than before you know trying to look up frame data and, and trying all the frame data and everything is there so you can start to 
build on it. And, and I think that's that that can be a really good approach. So one thing you can do if you make an incredibly complicated game uh, is start thinking about how to tutorialize that later and, and different ways to get people in. Something that uh, I know um, Eve Online struggled with massively for yep. years with onboarding uh, and actually you know going back to that game just a few years ago the onboarding is so much better now and that there are things that you can start off doing that are quite fun uh, and it just takes a long time so really don't kind of if you have the capability to build something with enormous depth i think the accessibility can be something that comes later you've got to be careful with that kind of thing though mm-hmm. yep and that tutorial for mk11 like you said like if I had the time to dedicate it, I would probably be spending, you know, every day in that tutorial just, like, trying yep. to get good yep. at the game. And it would be amazing to see, like, more developers kind of take notes about that. Because you can't really assume that everyone who plays your game is going to be a hardcore expert. Exactly. And again, I think it's it's your... In order to make something that that has that level of complexity, just giving a nod to new players, I think is good. But you know, to be honest, a lot of this stuff really does come out of out of the community. And and it, if you are able to foster that good community around your game, there are so many people online who really love teaching others. If they like something, they they want to introduce new people to it. I find that a lot of people who work perhaps in the tech industry or, or maybe, you know, our, our, our programmers or, or sysadmins or, or work on that sort of thing, they they can be some of the most considerate people at getting uh, new people into something they like. I mean, I think people uh, get a lot of bad press for being kind of angry nerds and stuff like that, gatekeeping. <laughs> and obviously that goes on as well. But I found that a lot of people really if they love something, they're just kind of happy that someone else is interested in it and they want to help them as much as possible. So those are the people to promote in your community, especially if you have a systems-driven game, like maybe people who work with systems for their jobs and are used to articulating them to others is the kind of person I'm trying to define here. But I'm just, I've had so many people from, from that kind of area of life and that kind of area of work uh, get involved, particularly with our games, and then become really productive, helpful community members. So if you can facilitate them, they're going to be the people that help the new players get into your mm. thing. Yep. And uh, going back to fights for a second, in terms, yeah. I think this will also be a good kind of lead-in to our final topic, for at least for today. <laughs> uh, <laughs> what kind of, I guess, persistent element, or like, what kind of replayability do you see with the game? Something that we're working on actively at the moment is getting the the meta game kind of there, uh, the the wider scope of the game. Uh, there are various different paths that we might go down for that. So it, it could include everything from you know choices you make in one playthrough affecting things in another, or you know different availability of different cards and so on. But that's all very much up in the air, and it and it's not something I'd want to kind of uh you know discuss without having made decisions on because i know that that can be quite difficult for people who are following a game they will they will pick on any detail and kind of go like when is this thing happening and then you, you kind of box yourself into a corner so that's something that uh james the designer is really actively thinking about we, we had a discussion about that today earlier what direction we go in with that um Again, we're focusing a lot now on making sure that core is really good. We've got some plans for how we're going to test that. Uh, and, 
yeah if i to give my one plug of the episode if you do want to find our discord and uh, and go and join that that'll be the way that you you get to play the game uh before anyone else uh so we'll be doing some testing in the community and, and really making sure that we we get that that really good core there first before we kind of expand out into the secondary metagame stuff so sorry i can't kind of go <laughs> into massive details on that yet but it's it's all a work in progress great and or do you have any uh, timetables for like going to early access or when more people can get a chance to try it out not currently that we're announcing i mean we've said that the game will be out this year um we haven't ruled out early access. I think probably unlikely that we'll do that. I think we'll go for a full launch, um, but we'll see how things go. Uh, it, again, it, a lot will depend on on the next few months and, and how people are reacting to what we have already and, and, and how everything gets built out. So, yeah, we're sticking to this year for, for now. All right, great. So with that, let's get to what will be kind of like our design topic then for this cast. We'll see how long this one will go. <laughs> But uh, let's talk, as you said, about this idea of long-term retention for games, because this is something that can definitely be hard for a lot of developers. Because I've played games myself where, or myself, where the game boasts, you know, 50, 100 hours of gameplay, hundreds and thousands of puzzles or stages, and I get bored or I just feel like I'm done with this game after about 20 minutes of play. And I know this is something that you've been thinking about quite regularly. Right. Uh, retention is is one of those things where it's about the variation of the challenge, the persistence of the challenge, how much you're using skills that you've built up along the way. We, we've touched on this already with, with multiplayer and, and sort of action games. Um, and then it's about the systems that you're interacting with and, and how much potential there is there. And one big element, I think, in this is player creativity. If your game is, it, it's kind of one of the reasons we've seen, you know, games like Minecraft do so well is, is that there's a kind of a blank canvas there. Um, I think a lot of retention is to do with the potential of the player to create things uh, in one category. In another category, you have things like Destiny, which are about gating off content for people who are willing to invest an absurd amount of time so you're actually saying it's, it's a kind of transactional relationship with the player where you're saying okay if you spend this amount of time doing these things you can have power that no other players can have uh and do things do missions and raids and so on that, that no other players can can get to um so that's a different kind of retention where it's sort of this promise of a reward at the end of a of a really long path um the the path has to consist of gameplay that you like but but i mean in destiny the actual things you're doing don't really change for the whole game you're shooting stuff Mm -hmm. uh, in different parts of its body uh you're upgrading the guns you're modding them you're you know combining different abilities and different things together that's what you do for the whole time and if you love that more than anything else in the world you just want new variations of that to kind of come on and then finally i think there's a community aspect as well there's a sociable aspect and that's been one of the big success points with Fortnite. you know Mm -hmm. you've seen a lot of particularly younger players they they don't play Fortnite. they they use it as a as a system to hang out with their friends and and like that's a huge 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 part of that game uh so there are all these different types of of retention but but they ultimately boil down to someone really plausibly having a long-term relationship with making 
you know, there, there are a lot of developers who'll make something and they'll they'll say like, oh, I, you know, this is cool and people will keep playing it because because it's fun. Mm-hmm. And you think, well, yeah, but is it is it going to be fun for a hundred hours? Yes, <laughs> it's it's difficult. It's very difficult for something to be fun for a hundred hours because it has to contain elements of novelty or it has to contain other relational things that that cause people to sort of stick there. I think we're starting to see a real maturation of retention. Mm-hmm. Uh, it was a term that originally merged with free to play, and it it often kind of meant trapping people in sort of Skinner box type scenarios mm-hmm. or you know just that you can think of like a stereotypical clicker um but there are whole you know there are all sorts of ways that you can generate long-term retention even using some of those mechanics i mean i think everyone got into uh universal paper clips i don't know if you played that game yes yes uh, I did. right so yeah you know and, and that but that was a way of, of showing like how you can even have a satirical element to what you're doing and, and have it be effective so it's not the, those mechanics that are bad in some way or immoral or wrong it's more kind of how you use it and how you treat the player that you're in that long-term relationship with you know you can you can treat them badly you can exploit them or you can you know celebrate them reward them and take care of them uh and i prefer obviously games that that do the latter but people will always make games that that do the former as well Mm mm-hmm and like we were having our discussion about kind with a uh, fights in tight spaces and just like Slay the Spire as well, that that kind of ability to retain a player through the gameplay itself can come in all shapes and sizes. You mentioned titles like Fortnite, Destiny, and mobile games. A lot of them, of course, are built around this idea of continued content and continued support so that when a player gets to the end, there's always new content coming or new content being developed. Yeah. But we also see, again, like from the roguelike aspect of being able to design, and this goes back to what we said in like kind of our first part of this cast, with getting a core gameplay loop that kind of affords or allows for that level of variance that somebody can keep coming back and having new experiences. Uh, right. This is why, like, one of my design books I want to write is going to focus on roguelike gameplay and that roguelike design. Because it it's, again, one of those things where once you understand it, you can kind of tweak your game or tweak your design to accommodate for more of that replayability so that it does feel not so much like a completely new game, but that you can have different experiences within that same core gameplay loop. Right. That, that, that's, that's absolutely critical. You know, it, it, whenever sort of people talk about roguelikes or, 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 or roguelites, you know, I, th- I think about games like Spelunky and, and games like Bind- Binding of yes. Isaac, which are just about, they both use these very simple traditional gameplay paradigms so that the base gameplay is there before you've even started on that stuff. So Spelunky mm-hmm. is a platformer. And, and Binding of Isaac is a is a twin stick shooter, and those are such refined genres. The arcade versions of those genres. I mean, there's so many platformers in the world. It might be still one of the most sort of popular genres of uh, of games. But if you have a structure there that is solid to start with, then you can build other stuff around it and on top of it that informs it. It's what we tried to do with Frozen Synapse too. You know, we took that core gameplay from Frozen Synapse mm-hmm. and then built a whole simulation around it. And I, I felt that part was really successful. Um 
one of the things that worked best about that game uh, was having that solid gameplay there first and then other things that modulate and, and affect it. And it just so happens that, uh, you know, both of those games kind of had the scope and, and had the the depth to them to take to take off. And then, you know, others haven't maybe had that because I, I think people look at that structure and they kind of think that it's easy again. You know, they think, oh, it's just a twin stick shooter and then some weird stuff happens. Mm-hmm. That's cool or whatever. But it, it's the, it, the, the, the devil's in the detail with, with that kind of game. I mean, they're, they're so time consuming to develop well. Um, mm-hmm. And there's so many things that can go wrong. I mean, Isaac particularly is a game that barely holds together, <laughs> even mm-hmm. in, in all of its current forms. You know, it feels like it's about to do something that's going to cause it to crash <laughs> almost constantly because of the absolute absurdity of things that can happen, you know, stuff can be scaled to different sizes. There can be infinite numbers of one thing on the screen. (laughs) There can be all these effects happening simultaneously. Uh, And that, that route to, to sort of long-term depth and retention, I think is a, is a hard and rocky one, but uh, amazing for anyone that has the, the persistence to travel it. Mm -hmm. And again, like, that level of insanity with the scale, I wrote about that in my first book when I was looking at major games people need to know more about. I also did Spelunky in that book as well. Mm. And again, it's that element that things aren't always going to happen the same way. And I think this is one of like, the hard points of this kind of retention is that the replay value of something like The Buying of Isaac, Spelunky, etc., is different than, say, the replay value of an RPG. Or right now, like as we're recording this, the big game that's out is Doom Eternal. Right, and right. I'm sure, like, and again, like, I haven't played Doom Eternal right now. I'm, like, sitting on the fence as to whether or not to buy it. But I played all the way through Doom 2016. And, like, on one side, the core gameplay loop of Doom 2016 was... I think as perfect as one could get for that kind of FPS. Yep. But in the same breath, I did start to like feel kind of like it dragging on. And that is, I think, one of those things that it's kind of hard to describe. Similar again to how easy is it to make a core gameplay loop. So mm-hmm. I guess uh, to throw this over to you, like, when do you feel like even like a great game, even something that you're enjoying, that it just starts to feel like, Ugh, I gotta keep playing this, or you know, there's still ten more hours of stages to do, or things like that. There's a couple of problems there. I think one of them is just the natural attrition of doing the same thing time. Mm-hmm. Like it's it's fun to eat a chocolate cake, but you don't want to eat chocolate cake every day. Yes, um, n- not least because it's terrible for you. But if you take that out of the equation, it's sort of like that makes it less special. It, you know what's going to happen. It, it's you know. It, but whereas if you if you spread it out a bit, you have different meals and then you you know you have a, a different flavor of chocolate cake then you, you get excited about it again and, and you like it so it's, that's that's very trivial very basic but it's, it's something that people f- can forget another is is progression mechanics within games mm-hmm. and, and this is incredibly difficult yes. there are some types of gameplay where you can't really do all that much progression like you can make it harder you can make it easier you can have different layouts and different numbers of bad guys and enemy composition or or what have you but but actually you know and i'm thinking back to like maybe the original doom here or some of the build engine games it's kind of 
they were so rinsed out in terms of that gameplay that the only things you could really end up doing was sort of novelty stuff. That's why you got kind of weird bosses in like games like Duke Nukem 3D and Shadow Warrior and weird underwater levels or crazies. You know, they, they just try and throw in variation that way. But actually, the gameplay doesn't sort of progress that much. You don't, in Duke Nukem, you don't sort of start, you know, having multiple Dukes that you manage that are on a <laughs> roster and they get injured. And, you know, there's, <laughs> there's no meta game to Duke Nukem 3D. Uh, with Doom, because these modern games refocused the gameplay around that very tight sort of action-based loop, and, and I think there's some argument to be made in, in Doom 2016 that perhaps some of the weapon balancing wasn't fantastic. Mm-hmm. I know I've seen sort of some people who are really into those games talk about that. Uh, that kind of thing can really kill the late game. Uh, but then, I, you know, I think some of this might be rose tinted goggles because the late game of a lot of those classic games is not good yes. <laughs> um, yeah, and and that's just a function of kind of all the things we've talked about where needing to escalate needing you know this this feeling that you need to increase difficulty towards the end of the game which you don't you know actually you can it doesn't have to get harder it just feels like it should mm-hmm. um all of that together i think can can make it really different so you can't have both you can't have a game that's kind of harking back to like the, those classic very tight gameplay loops and something that can perfectly progress in this beautiful arc uh, i think sometimes games need to be a little bit more complicated to have that that type of progression um it's it's you you have to pick your battles and i think i think doom 2016 was pretty successful in providing a lot of gameplay like that that was really good and had the right balance of things but um yeah it's about knowing sort of where your bread and butter gameplay is and, and making sure there's enough of that rather than weird stuff to make it seem like it's coming to a conclusion mm-hmm and like you said, like four law classic games. I'm as somebody who I, I've been playing a lot more classic games like every week on the channel that I do. Like they get very annoying at the end of their at some of the end of these games because, mm-hmm. as you said, like a lot of developers will think that progression just means difficulty. We're just going to bump everything up by like fifty on the final level, and that's great design, but. Being able to present different challenges and different ways of doing something usually ends up giving the player kind of, I guess, I don't want to say a reprieve, but kind of like a mini vacation that allows them to see something new. Um, right. A really great example of this would be stuff like the old school Mario games and all yeah. the different ways that you can apply these mechanics and do something different with them. And I was just playing another game lately, and I I can't remember off the top of my head. Uh, oh, I think it was called a Wonderling or something like that. It's kind of like a uh, platform puzzle platformer, endless runner kind of thing, mm-hmm. and very simple mechanics. But by changing things up each level or by presenting new things. It makes it so that it doesn't feel like I'm just doing the same thing for two to five hours. I'm getting like these, like essentially like bursts of different gameplay loops. That's and that's amazing if you have a structure that can do that. Yeah, it's interesting you mentioned you mentioned Mario because mm-hmm. those games really have that kind of down to a T where the the level design kind of tool set is there, and then it's about whatever anyone could do with it. I mean, obviously that's why Mario Maker works. It's it's mm-hmm. kind of you know it's a it's a creative medium in itself really and that's 
that's an amazing design goal to have. I think if, if you can hit that, certainly in, in a more linear type of game, you know, um, th- but this is kind of where systems driven games come in. Um, I mean, sandbox simulation and city builders and so on have become really all the rage. And that's because they have a very natural built in capability to retain players. You know, you can play the same level of a city builder game forever if you like that level. Um, there's, you can find different ways of doing it, you know, different build orders, different ways of organizing the space. And that's really the power of any type of simulation in a game is that it, that it creates that natural, uh, possibility space that's wider than, than it is in a linear game. Mm-hmm. And like we said, it's that kind of difference in design compared to something that's meant to be replayable. I guess here's a question for you, like for myself, I do sometimes go back and play like very linear games, such as action titles, Souls Lakes, stuff like that. After enough time has passed, that it's not as fresh in my mind. Do you do that, like with like with some of like these kinds of games? Yeah, I, I've gone back to things definitely. I mean, I, I replayed all of Doom one recently and and some of doom 2 and that was that was really good to do because there are obviously there are levels and things that that are familiar but there are you always notice new things in in games like that i mean we've seen the popularity of services like you know gog and Mm -hmm. you know the classic mini consoles and, and so on where it doesn't matter you know how old something is or 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 how linear it is i mean a game that i love playing through is streets of rage 2 um i just love the aesthetics <laughs> of that game and and also you know the feel of it there are so many side scrolling beat em ups um have a friend and we've been we've been trying to play through different side scrollers kind of whenever we we can meet up um and we've played some really bad ones and uh, and some really weird ones but there's nothing quite like the combination of how the characters move and that how they feel in how the control feels in streets of rage 2 with the feedback of the the incredible uh visuals and, and sound and even though i know every single screen of that game and kind of i could probably list out all the the enemies as they appear it's sort of I, i'm never going to get tired of playing playing through that so <laughs> it's like a piece of music really i mean yeah. music is a linear form and uh, if you listen to the same piece of music over and over and over again every day, you'll probably get sick of it. Uh, but then, you know, you might come back to it a few years down the line. Mm-hmm. So I guess like with more about like replayability, I think uh, more focusing on like long-term retention. Like I said earlier, there are a lot of examples of games that I've played that from a core gameplay loop standpoint, they work. But no matter how much you try to change things up, or kind of like put like twist on the existing gameplay, it kind of feels like like let's say like we were to like we could like measure the core gameplay loop as maybe me only having like an hour or two of entertainment, and I think that's another very interesting thing, a very hard thing to try and nail down for games when you're trying to sit to yourself. And again, this goes back to some of our previous conversations today. That idea of okay, what's my core gameplay loop, and how much can I reasonably expect to get out of this? Right. Uh, and, and different types of games suit different, mm-hmm. you know, expectations there uh, as well. And, you know, again, you might set out to make one kind of thing and then end up making another. And, and there's nothing wrong with short games. You know, there, there are sort of a, a lot of games out there that that, that don't have these, these mega playtimes. I would say that I think it's, 
immeasurably harder to have a very large scale commercial success with a short game than it is with a longer game. And, and there's there's a couple of just sort of necessarily true logical reasons for that. One being that if every person who's playing your game plays it for longer, then there's more opportunity for them to be talking about it, sharing it with other people. It will show up in their Steam and Discord statuses for longer. Uh, they will want to consume more content about it. They'll, you know, there's they, sort of natural things that happen when someone plays a game for longer. Um, and that does favor you know, those simulation-y type games uh, just because of the, the sort of ecosystems that we're in. But you don't, you know, not everything has to be about that. Not everything has to be about sort of how many copies can you sell and, uh, and whatever. So there's there's plenty of very, very interesting short games uh, that, you know, can really work or, or can say something different. So I would say to designers, although there's always going to be a talk about retention and, 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 and the benefits of that, and it's certainly something that you know I look for on the more commercial side of things. There's plenty of uh, of opportunity to make cool, cool short things. Yeah. I'm glad you mentioned that because that's another conversation we've been having lately. And earlier you mentioned, of course, when uh, Steam Greenlight came about or Steam Direct, and like how a lot of people are saying like doom and gloom along those lines. There's definitely been like this discussion about whether or not short games are still viable because as i'm sure you're well aware of i'm sure as the audience listening is we are seeing at least in the digital era a lot more in terms of refund policies and again Mm. you buy a game and steam's basic idea is that you can return it within 14 days with under two hours played no questions asked you can go up to you can even go a little bit further than that. Again, we don't know the exact metrics because Steam Valve is very private about that. But there have been discussions about is it still commercially viable to make a game that is only an hour long or thirty minutes long? I I think it's commercially viable to to do anything mm-hmm. if you're if you're doing something that is massively appealing and and unique you know if you made an hour-long game that was just the most incredible narrative experience if you made a sort of edith finch Mm -hmm. or uh and everybody has gone to the rapture or uh you know a firewatch that was an hour long then i think people would would buy it um Mm -hmm. but you would have to it would have to be so amazing in that one hour because you'd have all those disadvantages that that you know versus stuff that i just mentioned and you made a very good point with with refunds i mm-hmm. i don't believe that 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 has kind of killed off that kind of genre of game particularly because i again i think if maybe it has for for a more a, a, a sort of more disinterested audience who are kind of quickly picking it up in a sale or whatever and they're playing it and they, they didn't like it but so it might you know, maybe there are some games that you could point to that wouldn't work now because of that. But but I kind of think that's this is just pure speculation. Now I kind of think that's a bit overrated as as a threat. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I think the people who are who have issues with refunds, you know, maybe maybe there's some other factors there. I, again, I'm sure you could find examples where that, that's not true. And I'm not I'm not trying to say that no one's ever had a problem with refunds or, or anything like that. Uh, I, I'm really sort of speculating off the top of my head here but but i'm uh, yeah I, i'm still i'm still intrigued by that i mean there's so many different aspects to which games are doing well and when i mean i've talked about a few 
sort of walking simulator style games. And, and one that I always come back to is the beginner's guide, um, which is, was one of those games that was sort of, it caused a bit of a buzz at the time uh, and then kind of got forgotten about. But, but to me is sort of one of the most interesting first person game experiences that exists. And that, you know, uh, ostensibly did extremely well on Steam, despite being a short, linear narrative experience that you probably don't really want to play more than once. Um, so I think, it, even though that came out a while ago, if someone made a new beginner's guide style game now that had the same level of weight to it uh, and the same level of thought put into it, I, I would absolutely play it, and I think a lot of people would as well. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and. Like you said, with the amount of quality and going into these titles, it's always like, and I've said this before, like for myself, I'd rather play a game that is amazing, but could only be maybe a few hours long, versus something that it feels like it's either being padded out or the gameplay just isn't there, but it has supposedly 500, 1,000 hours you can go into it. Mm. Right. And I think most people would as well. I think. One problem is that people tend to enjoy the feeling of there being a lot lot to something, like the feeling of it being substantial and there being lots of things that they haven't seen yet or could potentially see in the future. So I think one of the reasons that you get stuff that is a bit more padded out is is that need to create that feeling of, of making something that feels weightier and whether that's you know good or bad or, or, or right or wrong it is a real psychological factor for for players um so uh, i think it's 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 difficult to get away from that uh and the, the other factor is you know while some things feel padded out the sad truth is if you have a long linear game 90 percent of players are not going to see the last third of it yeah. um so it's just natural for developers to spend much more energy on the start and middle of those games because basically games always you know there's never enough time to make a game it doesn't matter if you're on a self-imposed schedule there's just never enough time so your energy has to go somewhere and in linear games it tends to go towards the start and middle um there are some there are some good exceptions to that you know uh the original prey is really interesting on that regard where it suddenly kicks into a crazy weird gear at the end and starts doing all sorts of interesting things i won't i won't spoil that game for people even though it's really old i don't think enough people have played it um but the the ending levels of that game if you can press through some of the terrible stuff in the middle are really extraordinary and wacky and 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 creative um so there are there are certain games like that's just a random example that came to mind where there's a huge amount of creativity in in the in the late game of uh, of a linear progression so yeah some exceptions to the rule Mm mm-hmm and I want to touch on the idea of the idle genre, that kind of idle progression curve, because that I think is another very fascinating asset when it comes to attention. Because I'm, since you brought up Universal Paperclips, uh, I'm sure you are well aware of the idle genre as much as I am in terms of how addictive these games can be. And mm. These are not titles designed around massively complicated games or, you know, long-term gameplay loops. But it's about that kind of, I guess, that escalation or that progression and scale that keeps somebody coming back for more. Right. Universal Paperclips is interesting because it, it genuinely has these very different phases to it. 
um and, and again that that's sort of almost a spoiler if you haven't played that game just go and play that and and uh the only advice you need is stick with it <laughs> and follow that advice to the bitter end um but yeah that that sense of escalating scale I, th- I think is important that sense of you know how far you've come in a in a in a clicker game even though it's all very nakedly just sort of numerical trickery um there's it, it does something to your brain to kind of i think it's just like the living embodiment of sunk cost fallacy <laughs> where you're kind of there going i've put so much into this <laughs> so much of my life has gone into this game uh, uh if i just keep going a little further I'll, I'll get somewhere really important um it's an interesting phenomenon i feel like a lot of those mobile games kind of very directly play with human psychology uh in a sort of very one-to-one type of way uh whereas whereas other stuff might be a little a little less uh crude in in the way that it does that maybe a little more subtle but um but clickers are interesting i mean like anything it's sort of it's a gameplay structure i think a lot of mobile experimented with how little interactivity can we have Mm -hmm. and how little you know skill or little decision making can we have And, and that's actually a very interesting design exercise if you take kind of I think morality tends to get brought into the picture because of of the way that a lot of those mm-hmm. games monetize and there's real questions about that yes. you know what type of uh, are they preying on on people who are vulnerable um are they playing on things like gambling addiction or certain types of personality that that will get fixated on particular things uh, and may not have the best um self control when it comes to money like those are real moral issues and and luckily i think we've seen a a, a much better discussion and and framing of those as as time has gone on but if you take that out of it so let's say you know it's a free game that it doesn't monetize um -hmm. i don't think there is sort of an innate morality there or an innate moral problem I, i actually just think it's kind of an interesting design tool that that you can use um to do different things good or bad just like any other set of mechanics really yep and saying about mobile like i've had a chance to play like several big name mobile games over the past a few months i've been playing a uh, marvel strike force and i recently downloaded i think it's marvel contest of champions and both games i think occupy what you just described that it is a game that's built on that kind of grinding or that kind of like very small, very simple core gameplay loop. And then it just keeps expanding out with kind of, okay, you've gotten this character to three stars. Now you should try to get him to four stars. Or maybe you'll get a lucky pool this time and so on mm-hmm. and so forth. And it's something that we've talked about on many podcasts before that these kinds of designs, they weren't designed because the developer was stupid or they didn't want to make something complicated. They were designed that way because it works. That kind of se- that sense of scale, that idea that there's always another form of power or another thing that I can do is a very powerful motivator to keep somebody playing. And right, absolutely. Yeah, it's it, it's just a lever. You know, yes. in the human brain. Yep. yep. And I think that takes me to a question that I want to ask, because it's a conversation we've had before with other developers. Is the idea or the concept of grinding in a game, is that, like, can that be, I guess, weighed as being good or bad? Because there are some people who feel that the second the game becomes a grind, it is automatically bad. But then there's this concept or there's this discussion I've had with people about that you can have 
good grinding with a title. It's just personal taste. Mm-hmm. It, 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 if you like, I mean, I mentioned Destiny earlier. Like, I, I, I've enjoyed playing Destiny maybe sort of 10 or 12 hours of, of Destiny 2 and kind of gone, oh, like, oh, I kind of get what this is doing. Like, that's interesting. And, and you know, it, it's not for me to have a long-term thing with it. Whereas other people, they just love, they love mm-hmm. shooting the same enemy over and over. And it's kind of relaxing or calming for them or... Yeah. You know, it, it's it's a place it's a place that they can go and they feel safe and it's predictable and repetitive. You know, a lot of I, I think something that you learn a lot, perhaps when you when you grow up, uh, is that entertainment isn't always about being challenging and exciting. Mm-hmm. It can be about giving you a safe a safe place to be mentally, um, mm-hmm. especially if your if your life is challenging. Like I mentioned um, offhand, sort of it, when I was talking about. The history of mode seven we spent some time working on tv quiz shows and part of that was you know uh doing graphics operating so one of us would would go into the studio when they were filming the show and and operate the you know the scores or the, the question system mm-hmm. or you know what, whatever and when you work on that stuff a lot it, that's sort of in some ways the lowest common denominator of all entertainment is a tv quiz show because it's it's just nothing it's 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 a quiz uh it, it's very light um, mm-hmm. There's nothing challenging about it, particularly. Uh, and I remember kind of thinking, you know, coming out of one of these things and going, oh, you know, it's a bit depressing making this stuff. And then I had a conversation with my with my grandmother and it turned out that she loved to watch one of the shows that we, we happened to be working on. And she was so excited that I was working on it. And it just connected with her in a way that sort of none of my, my work ever had really before. She said, oh, you work on that. Oh, it's so good. You know, and, and the reason that she watched that was it, it just provided some structure and routine in her day. It was, it was a distraction uh, and it, it wasn't sort of difficult. Now, obviously, it's not good for people to just only sort of see unchallenging things uh in there and and never kind of experience anything that that challenges their worldview but there's such a huge need for entertainment like that uh it's it's really a kind of um a a thing that can be very good for your mental health uh and also it's always good to just take things down a notch at times so games that do that grinding is a big part of that for a lot of people you know particularly mmo style gameplay if they can do it with friends around so they're you know grinding something or they'll be on chat with with a couple of people talking about something else or they, they just feel like they're gently building towards a goal and they don't have to occupy all of their brain you know that's great let let people enjoy that i know it's a frustrating type of gameplay for people but i think as long as it's clear that that's kind of what you're in for or there's a way to skip it and get around it if, if someone's trying to play the game in a different way then you know let people enjoy that if they want to enjoy it mm-hmm. yeah and again is that same kind of mentality with the idol genre for me or even if i play like you mentioned streets of rage 2 earlier i play that one contra the old school games yeah. where I've gone so good at that I can just kind of relax and play those games. Like it's not mm. stressful for me at all to sit back and enjoy them. I'm I'm impressed that Contra is not stressful for you. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, right, exactly. It is it's the same thing about that stuff. They they will often have something that they that they personally kind of use for that same thing. It just happens to be a different, you know, 
different game or, or, or movie or TV show. So again, I think, I think it's about balance. Like, and, and a lot of life is about balance. Like having some things like that in your life are really good. Now I was someone for years where, where I kind of, I wouldn't, really use entertainment to relax that much i was always quite analytical about it uh, and sort of i'd want to sort of see what i could you know extract from it that might be useful for work or kind of look at what the writer was doing the tv show or, or whatever and then but finding something where i can just relax and enjoy it maybe it's something that's that's really silly or you know i used to watch a lot of a lot of bad movies when i was at college like i would i would go and buy cheap movies from discount stores and and just watched like the worst thing you could ever imagine I, I found that relaxing because everything about it was so incompetent that you were kind of enjoying that more than you were the actual movie there was nothing remotely challenging about it other than fit, trying to figure out why someone would ever make something so weird um that kind of thing i, I think is is really healthy and uh, and again you know it's a lot of this stuff, I think, comes from defensiveness and, and judgment of other people and, and, and their lives. And actually, if you kind of look at your own life, your own situation, there's probably a lot of things where, you know, you're you're doing the same type of stuff to relax or what have you. So, uh, yeah, again, it, it just comes back to let let other people enjoy things. And but But developers also, you know, make sure that your contract with a player is fair. If you're presenting them with all this exciting stuff and then suddenly throwing grinding at them and saying aha you can't have it you know just arbitrarily that's always going to be annoying to people so mm -hmm. as long as that as long as that conversation is clear with the player and you know you're not trying to hide the the type of game that you're already making then i don't think that anyone can have a problem with it really mm -hmm. yep and i think with that like we're closing in on two hours of this conversation <laughs> i think we can begin to wrap things up because again a lot of these conversations can easily like turn to long form discussion so i guess anything else regarding retention or long form gameplay that you like to bring up i think uh, I, I kind of want to again clarify for for designers you know at the moment, the thing to do if you're if you're trying to uh, make a game that's commercially successful is to think about retention. Making a game that's trying to make a game that's commercially successful uh, it shouldn't be the be all and end all. If you have an original, different idea that you want to go for that that doesn't display these obvious retention traits, then you go and make that thing. You know, you, you might be onto some new genre or some new idea. It's going to blow everything else out of the water anyway. And also, it's so important, and it's so important for, for culture and for indie games as a whole, that people don't solely focus on commercial goals. Um, as long as they're aware that that's what they're doing, and then they don't have huge expectations of it, you know, go out and make whatever it is that you want to make uh, and see if it connects with people. Uh, and I promise that, you know, you will surprise yourself and you will find new areas uh, of your kind of creativity as a game developer that you may not have discovered before. So it, there's so much value in, in all the different types of, of game development um, that it, it, it's the conversation shouldn't be dom dom dominated by commerce, but also, you know, it, it's useful to pay attention to such things if you're if you're trying to run a game development business. So yeah it, game development should be a broad church with lots of different approaches that's one of the things that makes it cool and interesting mm -hmm. yep and i think that is a great sentiment to end on in terms of just trying to be able to 
get look at these games and see you know what they're trying to achieve and again not every game can or should be designed around dozens or hundreds of hours of gameplay and if you're able to again going back to kind of like our central theme with the core gameplay loop if you're able to make something enjoyable for 30 minutes an hour then see what you can do with that and it's perfectly okay to say that this game is meant for like three hours of gameplay. Like there shouldn't be anything wrong with having a short experience. Just that there shouldn't be anything wrong with having something being long. Exactly. All right. So I think with that, we will wrap things up for this week's cast. Paul, it has been a pleasure hanging out with you while we are still stuck inside. We'll see. <laughs> Maybe by the time this cast goes live we'll be able to leave our homes we should hopefully at least oh i i I hope so and and yeah just just shout out to everyone listening you know uh keep going at the current time and everyone will get through it Mm -hmm. do you have anything you would like to say to the fans or anything to wrap up the cast with just nothing other than to thank you uh, and it, you know it, it, it's a great sort of uh experience and, uh, and and a nice a nice break to be able to talk game design with you in in this sort of long form format so <laughs> i really appreciate the opportunity and i hope uh, i'll be back sometime no problem thanks again for coming on like i said we've been trying to get things going you know through email and twitter tag but it's great to finally be able to sit down and if you are free in the future uh we can always do a follow-up cast or do something live That'd be great. Look forward to it. All right. Before I let you go, do you have any social media? I know you plugged a few things earlier. Anything else you would like to plug for people to follow you or find you? Sure. Uh, just Mode7Games on Twitter and Mode7Games. Uh, and if you would like to really help us out, then go and check out Fights in Tight Spaces on Steam and give it a wish list if it looks interesting. Great. You kind of cut out for a split second after you said your Twitter. Was What was the second oh, thing okay. you said? Uh, uh, so I'll, I'll just say that again. Uh, so my Twitter is Mode7Games, M-O-D number 7 games. And if you uh, would like to check out Fights in Tight Spaces on Steam, please do so and give it a wish list. All right. Great. So... Uh, with that, for those of you listening, we're going to end things for this week's cast. If you'd like to follow me, I am on Twitter at GWBicer. There's, of course, our Patreon as well, patreon.com slash GWBicer. Your donations can help to keep things running and get access to stuff such as ad-free versions of our videos and thank yous for a lot of our stuff. But uh, you can follow... Uh, you can also join our Discord channel. There should be a link to that down below. It is open to everyone at the basic tier. And we'll be back next week for another discussion on game design here and on game wisdom, where we the art and science of games. And be sure to check back for daily discussions as well. But that's going to do it for now. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Perceptive Podcast. Have a great rest of your night, and we will talk again real soon.